The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. Mark chapter 12, um, in verse 1 to 12, uh, follow along with me, either in your Bibles or on the screen. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. Still he had one to send, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then? Will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him. But feared the crowd because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Uh, one of the most important and unique aspects of uh, humanity, really, is the power of stories with the ability to connect to us in deep ways. Uh, just three weeks ago, I, I finished uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and it was amazing, the depths of character development and the, the situations there that, that even here, now three weeks out, I am still thinking through the, uh, the issues involved with the characters and the situations there. It was a very moving book uh, that uh, helps us learn what it means to live an authentic life in light of sin in the world and brokenness and also redemption. Uh, by default, I am not an emotional person. It's just not who I am. Uh, however, toward the end of my seminary days, uh, I read Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, um, and it wrecked me. I have never uh, been, I have never wept uncontrollably at a book before, but that book messed me up for days. And uh, it, it opened up parts of me that I didn't even uh, know were, were there. Uh, that's what stories do. They, they, they connect us. They make us think. They challenge us. They, they teach us. For centuries, fairy tales have been the means by which children have learned to look out for themselves, to, to see danger, uh, also to, to look and see good in the world. Uh, we see Aesop's fables have been teaching children morality going back all the way to the 6th and 7th century B.C. Uh, they are that old of stories. And Jesus' primary way of uh, teaching was through something called parables. And parables are, are short stories that are meant to teach a, uh, a spiritual truth. 
for the most part, Jesus used parables to teach people about the kingdom of God, about the, the coming age, about the character of God, what faith looks like, what the end times are going to look like. And uh, today, however, Jesus is going to go back into parabolic teaching, uh, although it is a different kind of parable. It is not one to teach people about God and his kingdom, but rather it is to indict the leaders of Israel within their own sinfulness. It would have been Tuesday of Holy Week. The, the leadership of the Jews would have had a very rough week up to this point. On Sunday, Jesus appeared while, uh, coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, uh, which the people of Jerusalem knew that this was the symbol that the king was coming into uh, to take his, his uh, throne. And they were welcoming him to that claim. And on, on Monday, Jesus came into the temple and he humiliated the leadership by flipping tables over due to their greed and their, their discrimination and exclusion of non-Jews or Gentiles into worshiping God. Earlier on Tuesday, the leadership tried to incriminate Jesus uh, into blasphemy by asking him where his authority came from. And as we saw last week, Jesus, he doesn't fall for this at all. And uh, instead, he embarrasses them because they can't admit whether John the Baptist was truly a prophet or not. And immediately after that, Jesus then directs this parable at the leaders. And it's perhaps that, that final spark for the leaders to finally figure out a way that they can get rid of this, this Jesus. And in three days they would. Just three days from the event that we're looking at today, Jesus would be uh, publicly executed. And if we are not careful, we can gloss over this passage as simply a historical account of Jesus' progression to the cross. However, uh, as the chief priests, the Pharisees and the scribes, those that made up the Sanhedrin, plainly understood that he was talking about them, you and I need to ask ourselves whether or not Jesus is talking about us today. So in order to get at the heart of what this passage means, we need to take a couple of things into account. And the first one is that we need to see the patience and kindness and the grace, the goodness of our God. This parable that Jesus utters here is not just a parable. Uh, it, it's what's called an allegory. Uh, an allegory is a story or a situation in which the characters and the events of the story correspond with something else. So it, it might mean something. C.S. Lewis was famous for this. In the 20th century, for the, the, all of the Chronicles of Narnia were written as an allegory about the Christian faith. Aslan was the lion who was the Christ figure who resurrects and saves. Uh, you see Edmund, who is the, the, the rebellious kid, who, uh, who is atoned for by the king, Aslan himself. And I can go on and on, but you get the point that an allegory is where something means some, everything means something. And here, Jesus masterfully tells an allegory of God's expectations of the Jewish leadership. Their failure due to pride and arrogance and what God is going to do to restore his people. And he does so with a keen understanding of the wine industry. Look in verse 1. 
he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. So not only does Jesus know how to create a vineyard, but he also knows how to keep it protected. He builds a fence to keep critters and thieves out. And he also has a watchtower to watch out for those thieves that might be coming from a distance. And uh, Jesus knows that this is a common practice in Israel at this time when someone uh, may own a large piece of land and rent it out. We see that today as well. Uh, many of us who own large acreages might lease out our property to someone else to farm. Uh, when I was pastoring in Nebraska, I had this guy in my church that was a tenant farmer, and he uh, rented 2,500 acres a year uh, to different farms, which is, I mean, that's huge, on top of uh, uh, running a cattle farm as well. So he was, he was very busy, uh, but he was also here um, renting out the land. But unlike today, which you might own 50, 10, 100 acres, whatever it is, and rent out, but you're still homesteading there in the property. That's not what was happening here. Uh, this was called absentee landowners. So they rented it out and they often lived somewhere else, often very far away. So Jesus uses this familiar situation now to set the scene. Verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. So it would have been obvious then that this was the contractual agreement. They tend the land, they get some of the produce, and the owner will get some of the produce as, as well. But instead of upholding this contractual agreement, the tenants decide that they're going to keep everything for themselves. Look in verse 3. They took him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them. They hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then another he sent, and they killed him. So he also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. And it's at this point that you would imagine that the Jewish leaders here are getting a little nervous. Because the history of Israel is fraught with persecution against God's messengers, typically from the leadership of Israel. And now Jesus brings this story to a, a dramatic climax in verse 6. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. Now, I... I I admit that reading this story, uh, it's really tempting to see God as pernicious or not caring or mean to his servants for going through this. Why would he continually subject his servants to such abuse and even murder just for some grapes? As a community in which land leasing was common, these hearers would have been outraged not only against the wicked tenants, the ones that are trying to steal this property and take it for themselves, but also the landowner uh, for him sending out his servants is almost criminal negligence here. So why didn't he just go to the farm with the constable or the court and just clean house? 
Why didn't he just go in there? Is he a coward letting individuals do his, his dirty work while he just sits at home and watches the, the cable news network? Perhaps you see God in the same light. If God is real, and if he is good, why would he do such a thing? And the answer to that is far more profound than perhaps you're willing to admit. To see God here as pernicious and mean is to miss the entire point of the gospel. It minimizes the seriousness of our sin and it dismisses the immense love of God. If you remember question 16 in our New City Catechism, the question was, what is sin? The answer Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, and resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So in other words, our sin seizes control of God's vineyard, our lives. We discredit him. Or dismiss him. We dismiss his word and we would be very happy to kill him in our own consciences. And thus living in a world without him. If we take, it, if we take that seriously, sin as seriously as God's word does. Then we have to admit that God would have every right to show up right now. And wipe us all out. But as it is, his love for us is so great that he withholds his wrath to give us a chance. In his patience, in his grace, and in his kindness, he sends messengers to us armed with the word of God. So that we would be convicted in our hearts of our rebellion against him. His great love for us in spite of how horribly we have treated him. God is so good to us that he hasn't wiped us out yet. Instead, he's provided pardon for us. God is not a coward for letting people do his dirty work. Because in Jesus, God himself came to this earth to do the dirty work. And how he did it is completely counterintuitive. Instead of being the owner that would come back and, and, and kill the property managers and give it to someone else, he takes the hit. Look at verse 7. But those farmers, tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the, the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So instead of defeating his enemies with wrath and vengeance, God has defeated his enemies in weakness and in death. The story is going to completely offend the religious leaders and it is going to offend anyone with a prideful, self-righteous heart. If you can't see 
or refuse to see the sin in your life and God's just anger against it, the cross of Christ will mean absolutely nothing to you. The gospel will just seem like well-meaning fiction and nothing else. But if you see God's word as pointing toward Jesus, if you see his cross and you see his resurrection as not only the evidence of his patience and his kindness toward you, but more so as his decisive act of love on your behalf, then you're not far from the kingdom of God. So we need to see God's patience. We need to see his goodness and his kindness to us in all things. But also we should heed the warnings. We need to heed the warnings. That's our second point today. Even in light of the amazing patience of our God, we ought to see this, pa this passage as an audit. The IRS just hired how many auditors? Well, the word of God is a constant auditor of our hearts. And Jesus works his way through to the punchline and you can almost sense the, 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 the tension that's going on in the hearts of the, the leaders. And it becomes increasingly clear that he is talking about them. And he uses it against them. Look again in verse 6. He, being the owner, still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said uh, to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Then the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So to understand the insult that Jesus was placing on them here, uh, we have to remember that these leaders were people that knew God's word. Most of them, if not all of these leaders, had most of, if not all of the Old Testament memorized. Including the genealogies, by the way. These guys were masters of the word. And yet it sounds like Jesus is taking the prophet Isaiah and twisting it around. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Isaiah wrote, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, even dug out a wine press there. Is it sounding familiar so far? He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will tear down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds. 
How crazy is that? That the rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies, of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The plant he delighted in, he expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Are you tracking what Jesus is doing here? He is taking Isaiah, who God spoke through, to say that the vineyard is diseased. I'm going to judge the vineyard. Judah was morally bankrupt. They had rejected God. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and they totally decimated Judah and they got exiled out of Judah into Babylon. Jesus now is saying that the vineyard is not the problem. The problem are the farmers. They are responsible for what is happening. Imagine a reaction of a haughty and prideful CEO of a major Fortune 500 company if he was told the problem is not with your workers, the problem is with you. It wouldn't go over very well. And this comes to a head now in the punchline when Jesus, uh, he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? You know, in other accounts, it's, it's a rhetorical question or the crowd answers it. But here in Mark, Jesus answers it himself. He will kill the farmers and will give the vineyard to others. So now hold on a second. Now this is completely offensive to the leadership. And it is shocking that they didn't call for his head Right then and there. Not only does Jesus say that they have a judgment against him, but he also says the vineyard, the, 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 the people of God, the right to the kingdom of God, the inheritance of God will be given to others. And they plainly understood that the others Jesus was referencing there was non-Jews, Gentiles. This cannot be. And to add increasing insult, Jesus now cites Psalm 118. When he says to them, haven't you read this scripture? Of course they've read that scripture. They had it memorized. He's essentially saying you've read it, but you don't get it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's wonderful in our eyes. So the builders in this case were the leaders throughout the generations. Those who built the uh, spiritual house of, of the Lord. And because Jesus was the one that all of these prophets were pointing to, when a prophet was persecuted and, uh, and essentially killed, beaten, stoned, sawn into, all sorts of gross, hard stuff that they went through, the leaders were in fact rejecting Jesus. And so here, Jesus is saying that he is the cornerstone. Now, cornerstone can be two different things. Um, they both work in stone masonry. The cornerstone is traditionally the first stone that is laid uh, in, in the foundation there so that all the rest of the building is lined up uh, toward that stone. And Jesus in that is saying that I am the prototype of all humanity. I am what humanity is supposed to be like. And if you're going to use that metric, the leaders don't stack up at all. You and I don't stack up at all if we are to be compared to the, the, the cornerstone. 
It makes them into a subsidiary role. The, the cornerstone can also be a linchpin that holds everything together. Uh, it, it's like a game of Jenga. You can, you can take out certain parts until there's that one block which everything else is going to fall. And Jesus is saying that he is that one block. He is the cornerstone by which everything holds together. And this is precisely where we need to point the facts now of what Jesus is saying into our hearts. I don't come up here with the pretense that everyone that comes here on a Sunday morning is a follower of Christ. Or that everyone that is here that professes the name of Christ is walking in line with him. There may be some here, perhaps it's you, that is actively right now rejecting God's call on your life to repent and trust in him. You are like the tenants. You have been given an awfully decent life. And instead of living out of gratitude, you live as if the vineyard, vineyard, vineyard is yours. And when God's word comes to you, and it bears on your lifestyle, or your politics, or your actions, or your words, you immediately start singing with my friend Billy Joel. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. The problem with that sentiment is that unless the warnings of God's word softens your heart and brings you to faith, it will only result in continual hardening of your heart against all that is right and good. When we reject the promptings of the Holy Spirit, it puts us in a very dangerous position. Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, tells us this about Jesus. That he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and this is the, the, the underlining sentence here, and by him, all things hold together. You are sitting on a giant ball right now that is rotating super fast. And if Jesus were to just say, I'm pulling back, we'd all be in big trouble. Jesus holds everything together. If we don't hold fast to the one who holds all things together, all things will eventually fall apart for us. If not here, then certainly in the age to come. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, For this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we won't drift away. For if the message, spo message spoken through the angels was legally binding, 
And every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? One page over in Hebrews 3, the writer says this. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How do we counter that? He says, but encourage each other daily. This is the importance of community here. While it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Friends, don't let sin deceive you. The vineyard owner is coming back. And what kind of tenant is he going to find? One that says, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Or one that says, all that I have and all that I am and all that I do is only from you, for you, and to you. Lord, I am yours. You see, God is incredibly good to us. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Christ, he has shown you the extent of his love. In Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, he has offered us pardon for every time that we have tried to take the vineyard for ourselves. Yet his patience will not last forever. Thus, we need to heed the warnings of Christ today and fully put your trust in him. Let's pray.